today. Turn over to the book of Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8. We're going to begin in verse 3 and read through verse 6 today. Blessing. That's a good song, huh? Here I am, Lord. That's good. Right out of Isaiah. That's good stuff. 
My message isn't on that title today, so I hope this doesn't ruin the spirit. But what did the cowboy say <laughs> when he saw a bear eat Lassie? He saw a bear eat Lassie. What did he say? He said, well, dog gone. <laughs> You, you didn't like that one? <clears throat> what happened to the blind dog? He kept barking up the wrong tree. I like this one. What couldn't the Eskimo dog, why couldn't the Eskimo dog bark very loudly? Because he was a little husky. All right, finally, last but not least. Why was the dog always angry? He was a crossbreed. <laughs> crossbreed. Okay. All right. Well, anyway. Yeah, good, brother. Amen. Finally, somebody. There you go. All right. Psalm chapter eight, verse three. We're going to begin right there. Psalm chapter eight, verse three. The Bible says, "When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained." What is man that thou art mindful of him, Amen. and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beast of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Amen. Within the pages of this passage, there's a wave of humility that crashes on the, sea of our, on the, the shore of our pride. You can't read this without somehow realizing and recognizing the need for humility. I mean, the truth is mankind would like to either take credit for or claim a part of or an assist, if you will, in all things. We always want to have the credit. We always want to be a part of or feel that somehow we contributed to the success. But the psalmist put things in the proper perspective here. He puts them in the proper perspective. He says, what is man that thou art mindful of him? The psalmist not only acknowledges the insignificance of man himself, but he also recognizes the preeminence of God. See, the perspective is not so much a matter of, of how God views man, but this is how a perspective of how man views God and himself. One should not look at God and say, I am valuable to you. I am somebody to you. You're so fortunate to have me on your team, God. That's not how it ought to be. You're so lucky that I go to church. You're so fortunate that I serve in the ministry. You're so lucky to have me out soul winning and to teach a Sunday school class. If it wasn't for me, nothing would get done around here. That's the wrong perspective, according to the psalmist. 
The psalmist says, what is man that thou art mindful of him? What he's saying is, what in the world is man at all in your sight? That you would even consider him. That you would even allow him to even be a flutter on your mind or just a a blurb on your, your scope. I mean, what is man? And what it ought to really be is each of us as men and women should be saying... What am I that thou art mindful of me? We know God loves us and cares. In 1 Peter 5, 7, he says, Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Yes, we know that. But again, the real issue is how do we view ourselves in light of God himself? We started Community Baptist Temple in the Lake Senior Center a number of years ago now, 20 years actually. And um, that meant that, seeing it wasn't a church building, we had to arrange or set up every time we had a service in the building. Every time we went there, we pulled out the chairs, and we pulled out the tables, and we, we moved things around, and would set the pulpit up, and ultimately it came a point where we needed a, uh, we had a little piano, it was about, a, it wasn't so little, it weighed 100 pounds, just the bass, uh, the bass didn't weigh 100 pounds, but the, the piano itself did, in those days they weren't real light, and so you carried the piano, you set it up, and then you set all the chairs and the tables, we didn't have these, these light tables, you know, it was all those big heavy wooden ones with metal frames, and boy, they were heavy, and you're moving them up and down steps, and putting them in place and everything, every week, Every service, set up, tear down, set up, tear down, set up, tear down. And uh, I remember my, my son, Joshua, at the time was very young. And, uh, of course, my kids grew up in the church. Obviously, he's like, how old are you, Josh, 23 now? So he was only three years old when we started that church. And uh, uh, so he was just a young little boy. And I can remember at the age of four or five, as we would be setting up and tearing down, setting up and tearing down, I demanded, required that my son would help with that. Now listen, I want you to understand, when I grew up, my dad would not let me or my brothers ever sit on the sideline while other men worked. Never allowed to do that. We always had to help. It didn't matter. It may not have been very significant help, but it was help. We had to get involved. We had to be part of the plan because he wanted to teach us to be hard, good workers. And you know what? So when naturally, I learned that. So I went ahead and said, okay, it's time for my son to figure out how this thing works. And so I, I would say, okay, son, we're going to carry this table over here and we're going to put it over there. And I'd grab the table itself and I'd have him run over. He'd grab the back end of the table, put his hand on it, and we'd walk along. <laughs> and he would just go, but he was helping. See, he said, I'm helping. We're helping, helping dad set up. I'm helping dad carry the table. And, and that was just, just two years ago. He finally realized I was doing all the work. <laughs> but, but the fact is, is that, is that we would carry those tables, we'd carry those chairs, and I required and demanded that he help because I wanted him to learn to be a good worker. But the truth was, he wasn't helping me a bit. Matter of fact, if anything, he was slowing me down. I could have done twice as much, three times, four times maybe, but I'd wait for him because I was training and teaching him. Now listen to me. I want you to understand, when it all got down to it, my son didn't help me a bit. And you want to know something? You and I don't help God a bit, really. And it's all said and done. Oh, we like to believe we do. We like to believe we're such valuable assets that God can never do without us. But the truth is, life goes on long after we've left. And things go forward and churches continue and ministries stay faithful and God's people still go forward. Hey, wait a second. God doesn't need me. And honestly, he really doesn't need you. What is man that thou art mindful of him? 
You know, there's some things that I want to share today, just three simple things that God really doesn't need my help or your help on. Just three simple things. There could be a number of things we could talk about, but let's talk about these three today. I want to talk about, number one, he didn't need any help in creation. He didn't need any help in salvation. And he didn't need any help in everlasting life. He don't need any of our helps. And we're going to talk about that for just a couple moments today. So let's have a word of prayer. Father, we come to you. We thank you so much for your love and your grace in our life. We're such a needy people. We thank you for just being there for us. Uh, Lord, uh, I pray, Father, that you'd be with Mrs. Allman today here, that, Father, you'd strengthen her, you'd give her courage and comfort in the loss of her husband. Lord, we thank you for her faithfulness to be in the house of God in her place today. Lord, what a blessing that is. What an encouragement that is to me and the people of God. Now, Father, may you just continue to encourage her and help her. Lord, may you be with each of us, however. We all need your encouragement, your exhortation. We, every single last one of us, need, Father, you to give us that shot in the arm, that boost, if you will, to move us forward, to give us another day of victory in our Christian life. Oh, God of heaven, if there's someone here that does not know for sure heaven's their home, has not settled their salvation through Christ, then, Lord, may they settle it before they leave. But, Lord, we're grateful for the privilege we have to gather in your house and to honor you, for you are so worthy of it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we think about things, just like my son really didn't help me carry the table, the truth is no one needed to help God with creation. No one. No one needs to. You say, well, that's a given. Well, maybe it is, but it seems to me today that we're trying to help him. We're trying to come up with solutions and ways that the world came into existence. God doesn't need our help. He doesn't need our help. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, you know the verse by heart probably. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Turn, if you would, to Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. One of the most powerful verses in the Bible, in reality to me at least. What a wonderful truth this is. Referring to Jesus Christ, who is God, obviously. But notice again, God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, being God, created all things. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. I want you to notice again that phrase, all things, all things created, all things. That means there will be there will never be another new thing created. All things are created by Him. Therefore, anything that man comes up with is just taking what is already there and doing something with it. Right. You, you know what I'm saying? It'd be almost like saying, I made this vase. Okay, that's good. You mean you molded the vase. No, I created the vase. In order to create the vase, you'd have to come up with the what? Clay. And then I mean the dirt and every component that is involved in that, that particular vase. The fact is, is that you simply molded into something visible what God had already created. Amen. I mean, you took the created aspects of life, the dust, the dirt, the water, all that stuff. You put it together and made something from it. And let me tell you, there's nothing that man can do to add, contribute to, or, or be a part of creation. It is all God. He didn't need man's help. He'll never need man's help. He did it on his own and he doesn't need us. It's interesting, in the midst of Job's ordeal, we know Job went through a very, very difficult time. 
We know that he had some really close friends that were real, real helpful to him in that time of need, too. You know I'm being facetious there, but nonetheless, he, he uh, found himself in a real mess. I mean, he'd lost his children, he'd lost his, his possessions, he'd lost almost everything of any value or any significance. He lost his health. If there's one thing that is most difficult to lose, it's the health. And so nonetheless, he lost everything that you and I would count or consider valuable. And here he is now having a confrontation with his friends. And of course, his friends trying to help him, try to make him understand how it's his sin and how he made a mistake and how he's messed up and how he's really got problems. And if he really was right with God, none of these bad things would ever happen. You know what's sad? Today we do the same thing Job's friends do. The first time something comes into someone's life that is cross or a little bit different or maybe a little bit out of the ordinary or maybe it's a tragedy or a difficult time or a heartache or hurt, we immediately think to ourselves, what did they do to offend God? Okay, what's wrong with their life? I know what it appears to be, but obviously that's what we do. Instead of giving people that have been faithful the benefit of the doubt and saying, Oh God, may you bless them. May you continue to protect them. May you watch over them. May you help them. Oh God, gird them up. Strengthen them. Oh God, we don't know why you're permitting this in their life. But Lord, we know that they've been a faithful servant to you. At least from my perspective, Lord, all I can see is what I see. And Lord, I must lift them up. And I must ask you to bless them. We want to go, Oh, so I wonder what's really going on in their life. (laughs) Probably not such a good husband after all. Probably not such a good Christian after all. I bet she's got some kind of immorality in his life. Or maybe there's a problem going on. Maybe he's a little bit dishonest. (laughs) I don't know. That's what Job's friends were doing now. Accusing Job of being something he wasn't because according to the first chapter of Job, he was upright and he skewed evil. God God said that. Now, Now hold on a second. Here's what's going on now. So here he is. He's taking it on the chin now. He's lost everything of any value, at least from the world's perspective. He's no longer successful, at least, according to man. And here he sits now, and God decides, I'm going to talk to you now, big boy. It's between me and you, because that's really what it all ends up to be anyways, between us and God. And here's what goes on. There's some questions that are asked. Over in the book of Job, chapter 38, verse 4, the Bible says, God's speaking to Job, and he's asking him some things. And he says, where wast thou? Because let's face it. I mean, if you're going through this difficult time, don't you think at some point you start to wonder, God, why me? What's going on here? Don't you think so? I think so. Don't you go, God, but I've been doing my best to please you. I've been doing my best to serve you. Why me? It might just cross your mind. God asked the question, Where wast thou when I laid the foundation of the earth, Job? Where were you when I created the heavens and the earth, when I laid the foundation for this thing? Where were you? Well, I was just... He wasn't. He goes on to say, Declare. If thou hast understanding, declare it. Tell me. Come on. Let's hear it. He goes on to say, Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? And who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, where, where were you? Or who shut up the sea with doors and when it break forth as it hath issued out of the womb? I mean, where you were you? Job, Job, do you orchestrate, do you command the sun to rise and the sun to set? That's what he asks in verse 12 when he says, Hast thou commanded the morning since thy days and caused thy day spring to know his place? 
I mean, do you really have control over that, Job? I mean, come on now. Now listen, God wasn't mad at Job for being concerned about his future, knowing what was going on in his life. I understand that. And I know God says that we're to cast every care upon him for he cared for you. But ultimately, Job finally gets a response from God. And God says, wait a second, where were you when I created everything? What part do you have in this whole thing? How did you orchestrate? Did you orchestrate this thing? Did you make it happen? And the answer is always the same. No. No, you're right, God. I'm like Schultz. I know nothing. I see nothing. That's that's the way it is. And again, the whole point being is, God didn't need our help in creation. He doesn't need our help now. He didn't need it then. The fact is, God created the heaven and the earth. No help needed. No help needed. Number two, salvation. God doesn't need our help in salvation. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25. Wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. He is able to save them. The Bible speaks of a new birth over in the book of John chapter 3. A new birth. Of course, we know that Nicodemus, a religious man, approaches the Lord Jesus Christ. And now the Lord's going to give him a discourse now in this birth process. In John chapter 3, verse 3, we can turn there. We'll read through verse 7. We see the new birth. And we recognize from the passage that God isn't dependent upon you or I. He doesn't need our help in this process. Notice what he says in John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, speaking to Nicodemus, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Can you imagine that? Marvel not that I send to thee, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. Okay, well, how am I going to do that, Lord? How am I going to get saved then? What do I, how am I going to get back in the womb and be born again? See, man, always, first, first thing on man's mind is what do I have to do? What do I have to do? What do I have to do? And so he goes on to say, Jesus saith, answereth, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is what? Flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. So what he's talking about is a spiritual birth versus a physical birth. You have to be born again, yes, but not out of the womb of your mother physically. You must be born spiritually, supernaturally. Well, let me just tell you something. Not one of us can perform that on our own. We can't do that. Well, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to start living a new life. I'm going to make sure that my good outweighs the bad. Let me tell you something. Something physical will never produce a spiritual response like that. It doesn't say, if you just go ahead and get back in your mama's tummy and be born again, then you'll be spiritually, spiritually reborn. No, that would still be a physical birth. And so everything that you and I attempt to do physically will never bring about the spiritual birth. It just doesn't work that way. Titus chapter 3 verse 5 says, 
Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. By the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done. There's nothing we can do to merit or to earn our salvation. God, the Lord Jesus Christ, does not need our help. But we are so arrogant sometimes. We're so misinformed. We're so prideful. That somehow we believe that we can add to the work of God. That we can somehow contribute to the work of Christ. Oh, he died on the cross and he shed his blood and he suffered and was buried and rose again the third day. Now I'll do my part to help him out. It doesn't work that way. You can't do anything for your salvation because God doesn't need your help. You're just like my son. In one sense, God's holding up salvation saying, you want in on it? Just go ahead and grab hold. And so he carries it all. And he lets us somehow believe, somehow believe at times that maybe we have something to do with it. And we think, he's going, I really didn't want you to think that, but because you're touching it, you think you do. I never told you you have anything to do with it, but you think you do because you're touching it. But let me tell you, he did not help me carry the table. I promise you that. And neither do I carry my own salvation. Any stretch of the imagination. It's all the Lord. He doesn't need my help. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The first thing a person wants to do when they have a part in something God has done is claim an assist. You know, in basketball... If, if you're dribbling down the court and somebody flashes across toward the basket and you fire the ball to them, they catch it and go up and do a layup. Or you snap it across the three-point line, catches it, shoots it, scores like I do often. It's called an assist to you. It's a basket for them, but an assist for you. And you say, I had a part in that basket. I made the assist. And you know what? As Christians, that's what we try to do. If we're not careful without realizing it, we say, oh boy, I had a part in that salvation. I had a part in in that work and I had a part in the success of this. It was all about, I assisted it. I assisted God. Let me tell you something. God didn't need our help really. He permits us to just grab hold, to be a part of it. But in reality, let's just be honest. He could do it without me. And sometimes I think he could do it a lot better. What is man that thou art mindful of him? What is man that thou art mindful of him? Salvation. God doesn't need our help. Because, see, the first thing man wants to do is boast about everything. I was talking to... I don't remember who it was now. I'm very good about that, forgetting who I talk to about things. So you you ought to be glad when you visit with me. But anyway, I forget things like that. But nonetheless, I remember what we were talking about and I remember what was said. And I remember saying, you know... The, the, real, the real thing, you know, one day we're going to be at the carousel. And you say it's the carousel? Yeah, it is because we're not there. When we get there, it'll be our church. It'll be Community Baptist. And by the way, when I go to community, I will always say the carousel. Do you know the old carousel? That's how they know it. I want them to know where it's at. I want to... Now, maybe in 10 years from now, they'll say, oh, you mean Community Baptist Temple. <laughs> but in the onset, they'll think of it as the carousel. And I'll be like, hey, you know the carousel. You know where that's at, right? That's where we're at. We're in that building. Community Baptist Temple. Oh, okay. Here's what I said to this person. I said, the danger is this. The danger is this. That we'll get up there. I'll get up there. There'll be a big stage. 
There'll be hundreds and maybe a thousand people sitting out there one day. And the temptation will be this, to go, wow, I finally arrived. Come on. That's the temptation. Finally did it. Finally did it. That's what the temptation is, folks. Because you know what man's greatest flaw is? Is his pride. What women's greatest flaw is their pride. It don't matter. We, listen, I, I said, the, the honest truth is that we must constantly be dying to self. Because we always want to claim and assist. We always want to think somehow that it couldn't have happened without us. That's what we want to believe. But the honest truth is this. If my work on earth is done at some point, God will bring someone else along. He'll work it out. The question is whether or not you are spiritual enough to follow. Because, see, God doesn't need you and he doesn't really need me. However, he uses us. He allows us to put our hand on the table and be a part of it. When in reality, he really doesn't need us. But hold on, before you go anywhere with this, you need your hand on the table. Amen. Just like he needed his hand on the table so that he could grow into what I believed he needed to be. We cannot grow into what God knows we need to be unless we are holding on. Amen. That's good. God may not need me, but I need him. Amen. And you know what? He may not need you in a sense, but you need him. And in a sense, God permits us to be a part of. And boy, that is the great blessing. Because see, it's not the work we finish with God that really matters in eternity. It's the relationship we have with Him. It's not about what we do for God. It's about what we are for God. Salvation. Last but not least, you're going, what? We're actually going to get out of here early? Yes, we are. Yes, we are. Actually, this is the new normal. You believe that? <laughs> okay. Everlasting life. I, I thought as soon as I said everlasting life, that song snapped in my head. Everlasting life. Okay, wait a minute. That just, just like that, snapped in my head. Some of you know the song I'm talking about. I don't know. Anyway, everlasting life. So what are some things that we, God doesn't need our help with? Creation, salvation, and then this everlasting life thing. Um, John 3.18 He says, He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now there's a couple things going on here. He that believeth on him, the Lord Jesus Christ, is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. So obviously a sentence has been passed on each of us. Humanity. And if you're part of humanity, the sentence was passed on you too. We are condemned already. Why? Because of our sin. Not what we do, but who we are. We're sinners. Therefore, who I am condemns me to a life in hell. A payment, eternal life, separated from God forever in the lake of fire. That's what me, my person, myself deserves. And that is exactly the sentence that was passed. On all humanity, not one person is born without already being under condemnation. 
No child that is, has yet to understand what right and wrong is will ever be held accountable for their sin. Don't ever misunderstand that. No child that you've lost or I've lost will ever be, be required to pay for their sin. Never. Because they don't understand enough to make a choice for Christ. But once a person is old enough, once a person is mature enough, once they've reached a point of accountability to God, then they're held accountable for who they are and what they do. Already condemned because of who we are, our sinful nature. John 5, 24 says, however, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation but is passed from death unto life. What a wonderful passage that is. God says, if you believe, you hear my word, you believe on him that sent me, the Lord, you believe in God and on the Lord Jesus Christ, you have everlasting life. You don't come into condemnation but you're passed from death unto life. Now, we were sentenced to death or condemned to death, but no longer once you hear and believe. Once you hear and believe, you now are passed from death unto life. That's what the Bible teaches. So you have life, everlasting life. John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Eternal life, everlasting. Now, the question is, when did that life begin? Well, according to the passage, we said when we heard the word, when we believed the word, when we put our faith in, when we accepted him who died on Calvary, paid for our sin, rose again the third day, when we truly trust and receive that Jesus who paid the penalty for our sin, the Bible tells us we are passed from death unto life. The Bible says, whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So from the moment we place our trust in Him, the moment we believe on Him, we have everlasting life. So let's assume that here at the cross represents the day I was saved, the day I personally put my faith in Christ, the day that I trusted Him alone to take me to heaven, not what I could do, because I realized, what is man that thou art mindful of Him? And I said, oh God, I pray and beg you for your mercy. Forgive your, this old pile of sinful clay. Wash me and cleanse me and take me to heaven. I need you as my Savior and Lord. He said, okay. You're passed from death unto life. Because you believe you're no longer condemned. You're passed from death unto life. No longer under condemnation. There it is, that day, right there. Now watch. How long does everlasting last then? Pretty simple, isn't it? From the moment I heard and received and belie- believed and received, everlasting means forever, right? That's the kind of life that I was given. Now, mind you, everybody lives forever though, right? So that gets a little confusing now. I thought that God breathed into man the breath of life. So therefore, he was a living soul. And therefore, he lives forever. He does. Every person in this room will live forever somewhere, somehow. The Bible says in the book of Revelation chapter 20 verse 14, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So everybody dies a second time. If they don't have this in their life, the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ. When you trust Christ 
as your Savior, the Bible says you have life. You've been passed from life unto death. The death is that death spoken of in Revelation 20:14, the second death. You will either live forever being dead in a sense, separated from God forever in a lake of fire, dead unto God, no relationship with God, no, no communion with God forever in the lake of fire, or you will live forever with him. See, the moment I got saved, he not only, from that moment on, Christ is with me and I'm with him because he moved into my life. And then one day when I die physically, I enter into his presence physically. So now spiritually, he's with me inside. And one day when I die physically, I'll be physically with him in heaven. So everlasting life, living with Christ. The opposite is living without him, which is eternal death. So, the Bible teaches us that the moment we're saved, we have everlasting life. That means life with Christ forever. That life began the moment you heard, believed, and received the Lord Jesus Christ, and it will go on forever. Or, if that's not true, then everlasting does not mean eternal or forever. Or two, and I almost shudder to even say it, then God didn't tell us the truth. But we know God's not a liar. And every promise of God is, yea. Therefore, God, He doesn't need your help to stay saved. Because He already gave you everlasting life. So what do you need to do to keep it? It's already there. I don't, I don't have to do anything to keep something that's already mine. It's mine. I possess it. It's everlasting, he says, and that means that gives me a duration. That means forever. And so if it's mine forever, then how can it not be mine a year from now or two years or five years from now? So if you've put your faith in Christ, then your faith is in Christ, and because it was placed in Christ, you have everlasting life. There's not one thing you can do to keep your salvation. You say, that's crazy. I think it depends on how a person lives. That's because you don't understand the Word of God. Right. I'm sorry. I'm not going to beat around the bush here. You, you, you don't understand what that book just taught them. We just talked about it. Do you have everlasting life or not? If you do, then how in the world can he take something back that he said he gave you? If it was really everlasting to begin with, he cannot take it back. Because it wouldn't have ever been everlasting. It would have been everlasting as long as you, everlasting until you, no, he just said it's everlasting life. God said it. I didn't. Someone says, oh, so you're, you're advocating living however you choose, doing whatever you want. You can just live however you want, and you'll go to heaven. I'm not advocating anything. I'm just sharing with you a biblical truth. Now, what you do with that truth is your business. You want to abuse that privilege. God says, I'll let you abuse it, but don't be, don't be so, so prideful and arrogant to think that as your father, I don't have something to say about that. We don't preach much about that anymore. We don't preach about that Hebrews chapter 12 where he chastens those whom he loves. We don't like to talk about how chastening isn't just a little smack, it isn't just a little reprimand. Chastening is, is and scourging, he even says at some point, has to do with hurting your very body maybe. 
Because he wants to get your attention and bring you back. God's a good father and he wants the best for his children. Don't think for a minute you go live however you want as his child. And just, well, I'm safe. I'm going to heaven. So that's the best. I, who cares what happens now? Oh, you, can, you may care a lot. All I'm saying is we have a relationship with God. Your fellowship's up to you. But the relationship is secured by Christ. As a matter of fact, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith into salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Who are kept by the power of God. That's how you're kept. That's how I'm kept. God doesn't need my help. He doesn't need your help. He doesn't need mankind's help when it comes to creation. He doesn't need our help when it comes to salvation. And he doesn't need our help when it comes to everlasting life. And I just want you to understand and think for me with just a moment, what, what is man that thou art mindful of him? See, the psalmist, when he said that, was saying, God, you really don't need me. You don't need us. Why would you even waste your time on us? And God says, well... I know I don't need you necessarily to do what I'm going to do, but I want you to put your hand right there. And I want you to come along with me. Because in the end, you'll be better for it. Yes, amen. That's good. You know something? That's why we do what we do. We're not doing anybody a favor serving God but us. Nobody's doing God a favor. We're all doing ourselves a favor when we get plugged into the things of God. It's our privilege. Are you saved? Do you know Christ is your Savior today? You need to settle that. You need to know that heaven's your home and that you have everlasting life. That your sin has been dealt with by the only one that can deal with it, and that's Jesus. And then if you're a child of God, what's your attitude toward him? What's your spirit toward him who created you and who ultimately recreated you and gave you everlasting life? What is man that thou art mindful of him? Father, we come to you. We thank you again for the time that we've had together around your word and the simplicity.